3: Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, the business affairs editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, should we be concerned about Turkey and contagion?
1: A number of emerging economies were caught up in this turmoil. South Africa,
3: Argentina, Indonesia to
0: some extent.
3: The weed killer lawsuit decision that could have wide-ranging repercussions.
0: Some academic studies suggest that food production could be hit by up to 20 million tonnes a year.
3: And the return of the tiger is the Tiger Woods effect back.
2: Anybody loves a hero. They love nothing more than watching a hero self-destruct, except for watching a hero come back.
3: First, Turkey's economy is in crisis. The value of the lira has plunged. A banking crisis threatens. How bad will things get for Turkey itself? And will it spill over to other countries? Simon Cox is our emerging markets editor and joins us now. Hello, Simon. Hello. Take us first through the the cause of this crisis. There's a proximate cause, which is a row with the US, but there are lots of underlying structural causes too. So what's brought Turkey to this pass?
1: Turkey's been pursuing a a somewhat risky economic model uh, for some time, one which relies on its corporates, borrowing heavily in foreign currencies. Uh, More recently, uh, the economy has been running a bit too hot, partly because in addition to all of that corporate borrowing and spending, the government has introduced uh, fiscal stimulus measures as well. That's contributed to uh, inflation in Turkey. And the central bank has been trying its best to fight it, but it's been hobbled really uh, by president erdogan so there's been a guessing game amongst investors about how much independence he will allow to turkey's economic institutions and how much his own personal preferences and ideas will dominate them so that was bubbling away uh, in the background long before uh, the the spat with the us really came to the boil now that spat uh, is interesting in itself it has a variety of dimensions but the most uh, important one in the last few days and weeks has been the detention of an American pastor who's been working in Turkey for some time. He was detained on suspicion of farcical charges that he was uh, involved in an attempted coup back in 2016. And his uh, case has become something of a cause célèbre in US politics, something uh, of close concern to the vice president, Mike Pence, and also to uh, Donald Trump. And so they tried to pressure Turkey into releasing... The pasta, they thought they had a deal. That deal came apart, and as a result, they've been taking economic measures against Turkey, including sanctions on two Turkish ministers and uh, last Friday doubling tariffs on Turkish steel and aluminium exports to the US. So, all of that contributed to uh, a very uh, panicky reaction amongst uh, foreign investors who thought that not only has Turkey been mismanaging uh, its domestic economy, it's also managed to enrage the world's most powerful country and economy and pick a fight that it can't possibly win.
3: And so what are the Turkish authorities doing to generally calm investor panic?
1: Not enough, not enough. They seem to be hobbled uh, by this centralization of power uh, in the hands of the president, who doesn't seem to be fully aware of the financial and economic vulnerability of the country, seems quite keen, in fact, to inflame tensions, to talk about uh, Turkish defiance, and uh, inhibit the central bank, preventing it from pursuing a tighter monetary policy, which is uh, part of the solution to its problem. What we really need now is a strong signal that uh, the central bank would be allowed to get on with its job. That could even include replacing the management there and uh, giving it greater autonomy. Uh, we might also need uh, a turn to the IMF. But the difficulty there is that the Americans have uh, said they'll look very uh, unkindly on a turn to the IMF for as long as uh, Turkey continues to detain US citizens.
3: And Turkey's vulnerability raises questions about about contagion and whether this will spill over to emerging markets. And we see some effects in other places from Turkey's current difficulties. What's your sense of of the risk of a a generalised emerging market sell-off?
1: We had, you know, obviously a fairly uh, dramatic day yesterday in which a number of emerging economies were caught up in this turmoil. Uh, South Africa, Argentina, Indonesia to some extent. I'm here in at the moment, and you know, the headlines were full of the fact that the rupee crossed 70 to the dollar for the first time. But I think actually the broader uh, consequences and side effects of the Turkish crisis should be fairly contained. Turkey has a number of vulnerabilities that are not shared, by other emerging markets. That includes the very wide trade deficit I mentioned earlier and this eagerness to borrow in foreign currencies. Typically, emerging economies have narrower current account gaps, narrower trade deficits. They also have much lower inflation uh, as a rule. So all of that means that their macroeconomies are a bit more robust and their institutions have a little bit more freedom to function For example, we already saw uh, Argentina's central bank take quite strong action yesterday to shore up confidence in its currency, raising interest rates by 5 percentage points. Uh, We might see uh, Indonesia's central bank take similar action this week. So I think that, uh, although we had a very troubled couple of days, I'm still hopeful that emerging markets as a whole uh, will not suffer too much from Turkey. Now, there are some broader common factors that have hurt Turkey and have hurt other emerging markets. Typically developments with US interest rates, uh, the fact that the US economy is picking up so strongly, some very early signs of wage pressure has led the Fed obviously to tighten uh, interest rates in a steady manner. And that has caused a number of emerging markets difficulty already this year from about mid-April. And those pressures will continue. But I don't see any additional contagion from Turkey extending much beyond uh, this week.
3: Is there another emerging market on your kind of radar that you worry about? Pakistan,
1: uh, Pakistan's looking quite worrying. Uh, it too has been talking about a turn to the IMF um, and it also has certain geopolitical tensions with you know, its biggest benefactor, the US and uh, also uh, hoping to uh, get help from China so, so Pakistan is also in a difficult position. And there are some sort of interesting parallels between Pakistan and Turkey. I think uh, both places uh, are very aware of their geostrategic importance and they count on that geostrategic importance in order to get uh, somewhat lenient treatment uh, from countries like the US that might uh, roll over loans or look kindly upon IMF bailouts. Now, I don't know whether that calculation still works uh, in the era of Donald Trump, who seems less concerned about the broader fallout from pushing an adversary too far.
3: It sounds like you're going to have a busy few weeks, Simon. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Next, a US jury has punished the chemical company Monsanto for not warning consumers that a weed killer containing glyphosate posed a cancer risk. The jury's award of almost $300 million in damages to a groundsman who contracted the disease has hit shares in Bayer, which acquired Monsanto earlier this year. Charles Reed is writing about the story for us this week and joins us now.
0: This came as a complete shock to investors in the chemical industry. They thought that glyphosate posed no cancer risk to humans and were very surprised, which is why the shares dropped so fast. But well. Bayer is going to appeal, right? This is not a this is not the
3: end of the legal process.
0: No, this is not the end of the legal process. It's likely even if this judgment is not overturned in another court that the amount of compensation will be reduced a lot. Bayer will fight this to the bitter end. It claims that there's no scientifically proven link between glyphosate and cancer and that there's no causal relationship between them. There are some scientists, however, who disagree with that. And the problem is, is this area of scientific research is highly commercialised in terms of funding.
3: Why, why was it such a shock to investors? Because there's a lot of controversy about glyphosate. that has been for a long time. There were reviews periodically on both sides of the the atlantic the idea that there is some kind of link between this chemical and cancer is is well absorbed this is just a surprise because it happened in the states or or why
0: Well, the World Health Organization in 2015 did say that glyphosate is probably carcinogenic. However, the pendulum had been swinging back against that point of view. In November, Europe had extended the licence for glyphosate to be sold and used by five years. And so a lot of investors in chemical companies thought that they were out the woods in terms of this. It turned out that wasn't the case.
3: And presumably, therefore, we can expect the Europeans to start to re-examine this f- post-haste if, if uh, as uh, as we've seen this week, the Americans seem to be becoming more, more concerned about but, it.
0: Yes, and there's already moves towards that. So we've had a
3: verdict from investors in Bayer. Uh, they're worried about uh, potential litigation costs from this and and from other claimants, what about the rest of the industry? How widely used is this is this substance? What would it mean if glyphosate suddenly became a chemical that could not be used?
0: The consequences are severe, um, not just for Monsanto, because it's not the only company which makes this, but for other chemical firms around the world. Bayer did not have the largest fall in share price. Um, Several companies in Australia suffered much greater losses in value. In addition, many farmers and gardeners are very worried about not being able to use these sorts of pesticides. And many say that this is the only pesticide which actually works very well. Furthermore, many people who are worried about food security are worried about this chemical becoming unavailable, either because it's banned or because companies which make it decide to put out the industry some academic studies suggest that food production could be hit by up to 20 million tons a year so the repercussions spread much beyond the world of chemicals
3: so as a consumer ought we to be worried that you know maybe output of harvest goes down and therefore prices go up could there be a sort of a real world effect on people like you and me
0: there could be a real-world effect, but um, b- before you um, run home and throw away all of the Roundup weed killer you have in your garden shed, the people who claim they have cancer because of this have jobs which involve being exposed to a lot of this chemical. The consensus at the moment is that low-level use of glyphosate poses no risk to human health. What probably hurts people more is the potential for food prices to rise in the long term if this. Chemical becomes unavailable. That should be the real worry for the majority of the moment.
3: Thank you, Charles. Let us know what you think about this or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. And finally, Gardy Epstein has been working very hard over the weekend. He's been dutifully watching golf, all for The Economist, of course. And the main story was the resurgence of Tiger Woods, who came second in a thrilling final round of the PGA Championship. Gaudy coming second doesn't sound like it's worthy of too many accolades. Why is this such a big achievement?
2: Yeah, Tiger might agree with you that coming second uh, isn't worth anything, but actually it is quite an achievement. He, He had a major meltdown, as most of the world knows, at the end of 2009. The last time he played well was 2009. And coincidentally, uh, this is the first time uh, that people have been tuning in to golf tournaments in the U.S. the way that they had back when he was in his prime.
3: So the, the people who are really celebrating, are not, it's not Tiger Woods himself, but media executives, T- tell us a little bit about what this Tiger effect is.
2: Yes, he lost a lot of sponsors. They've all come trickling back mostly, and he has still major sponsorships with uh, folks like Nike. And they all speak to the value of his brand. A Bridgestone executive, Bridgestone is one of the uh, companies that that he endorses, compared him to in transcendence to Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan uh, as an athlete that transcends his sport.
3: Um, And that's reflected in, in ratings?
2: Yeah, the ratings are through the roof this year. So the PGA Championship that he just finished second in on Sunday had the highest ratings since he finished second in 2009 in the same tournament, and it was 69% higher than the same Sunday last year. Uh, So that's just a tremendous boost. And similarly, uh, when he was in contention at the British Open uh, earlier this summer, Ratings were about 37% higher.
3: And presumably that, that then means they can charge that much more for advertising. So is, is, do, we, do we know yet what kind of bump that means for, for, for the bottom line for, for TV channels?
2: At no specific figure at this point, but the, but there's no doubt that Tiger Woods uh, will be a boon to, uh, to the networks uh, for the coming years. And also a boon to uh, Discovery, uh, which has announced a streaming service for people outside the U.S. to watch the PGA. It would be hard to imagine that people would be terribly interested in the PGA without Tiger Woods in contention on Sunday.
3: Why do you think he has this, so, such a such an effect? You talk about the comparison to Muhammad Ali and, and Michael Jordan. What is it about him that gives him so much clout?
2: Well, I think it's his personal story. I mean... Uh, Americans or actually anybody loves a hero they love nothing more than watching a hero self-destruct except for watching a hero come back from the depths and I think that's what we're seeing now with Tiger Woods but even
3: if he's back this is a temporary reprieve in a way for, for golf and and for the for the broadcasters he's 42 there's a limit to how long he can remain a sort of serious contender even even having made a comeback. So golf presumably still has a tiger problem or a post-tiger problem.
2: Uh, yes, I agree. I think what we're seeing is an anomaly for, uh, for the PGA and for the golf as a sport. I think uh, a few years from now, when maybe five, 10 years from now, I mean, golfers can play very competitively even into their uh, you know, late 40s, early 50s. So tiger might still be a draw for quite a while, but at some point he will stop being a draw. And uh, they'll be looking for a new hero like Tiger. But I just, I think he's pretty sui generous.
3: Uh, And will you watch in an event that he doesn't compete in?
2: No, I don't watch. I manifest this storyline. I I watched uh, on Saturday and Sunday this weekend. And I never watch uh, these tournaments. Uh, But I used to when Tiger was in his prime in 2007, 8, and 9. And now I will again when he's in a major tournament. I'll probably be watching on Sunday if he's in contention.
3: Okay, well, we'll let you get back to your TV. Gaudi, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Andrew Palmer. In London, this is The Economist.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?